You ready for the word? Did God say? In 1968, Paul Anka was in France on vacation. And while he was there, he heard a French pop song, the title of Comme Habitude, which means as usual. The melody grabbed him to the point that when he came home, he purchased the rights to use the melodic line, and he wrote a whole series of lyrics for it with one singer in mind. He was determined this song will be recorded and will be recorded first of all by this one man. It was an uh, immediate hit and rose to the top of the charts and in fact for 75 straight weeks it was in the top 40 in Great Britain. It became one of the most popular funeral songs in Britain and it has been played in the United States at many, many funerals. But the song has its roots in Genesis chapter three. The lyrics to the song come from Genesis chapter three. We left off in Genesis chapter two last Sunday with the first married couple, a marriage created by God himself, male and female. And God said it was very good. The first time he said very good. Six other times he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when he created Ish and Isha, male and female, and they became one flesh, God said, it's very good. They were of shared bones. Remember, God took Adam's side or took his rib and formed woman. Their oneness and the oneness of their union is a reflection of the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's a reflection of the unity and the intimacy that will be ours on that great wedding feast when Jesus comes again and takes his church, his bride. That's what Revelation calls the church, the bride of Christ. And we are united for eternity in the presence of Jesus. Chapter 2 ends with these words. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's quite a bit that we could take out of that verse, but I just want to point out two things. They were spiritually naked before God. They were spiritually naked before God. God came first in their love and in their thoughts. And C.S. Lewis adds to that without painful effort. It wasn't, a, they didn't have to think about loving each other. They didn't have to think about loving God. They were spiritually naked before God. They didn't have a need of, of regimented spiritual disciplines. All of their life was a life of devotion. All they knew was intimacy and love. Love for God and love for each other. They were partners in dominion over the creation with God. The scripture says God came, God walked with them in the cool of the evening. Domestically, they were naked with one another. Domestically, they were naked with one another. Clothing was not necessary, nothing to hide, nothing to protect. 
They were in a perfect place, perfect people. They were all about each other. No competition, no self-centeredness. They were authentic in every way and very comfortable with it. They were naked and were not ashamed. But now we read the first seven verses of chapter 3. And we're going to treat this as one section from verse 25 of chapter 2 to the end of verse 7, and you'll see why in just a moment. Verse 25 again, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. He started out naked and unashamed. Now they understand we are naked and they're covering their loins. Innocence was lost. Innocence was lost. Naked and unashamed to naked and trying to cover up. True story. It's real history. It happened to the first man and woman. But it's repeated over and over and over in the arena of human life. The fall from innocence to guilt. It's universal. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in this passage, we understand how it happens. We are going to make a few observations about Eve this morning before we get into the passage any deeper. Eve, at that point in time, before, before she has conversation with the serpent, she has no poison blood in her veins. She was not born in sin. She's not born a sinner. She had no heritage to blame for her actions. Now, we blame a lot of things on our father, and you do too, probably, or your uncle or whatever. She had nobody to blame. She came a direct creation from God, as Adam did. And God said it's very good. Eve, along with Adam, lived in a perfect environment. She did not have to move to another state to get away from bad influences. She lived in a place no sin. It was perfect. 
And as far as we know, there were no other people other than Adam to mess things up. And there was nothing in their environment to lead them away from God. Eve began that particular day the same way as every day. A creature of great wonder, no sinful heritage, no sinful environment. Everything was very good. But the tempter came in disguise. The tempter came in disguise. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field the Lord God had made. How many of you love snakes? There are some people who do. How many, when you're walking through the grass and you see one, there's an immediate adrenaline rush? In the garden, in the beginning, that wasn't the case. It was one of the creatures, one of their pets. It's interesting. Uh, at that time, they didn't, the snake didn't crawl on its belly. So it had some kind of legs, and it, it, like Mr. Ed, it talked. <laughs> and there's a whole lot about that story I don't understand, but this is what Moses was inspired to write. More crafty than all the other creatures. It became the vessel that Satan himself, the one who had been cast out of heaven to use for his purposes to tempt the woman and the man. What I believe is the serpent that Eve was familiar with became under the control of Satan himself. The serpent that Eve was familiar with She'd seen it before. Maybe they'd had conversations before. I make that statement based on some verses later on in Scripture. In Revelations 12, 9, we read this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelations 22 says this, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Luke 4.13, we see that in the story of Jesus, Satan is the tempter. And in Luke 4, and you read it in Matthew 4, that after Jesus was baptized, he was driven out into the desert where he was tempted for 40 days. And it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Those three temptations in the wilderness were not the final temptations. Satan came time after time trying to tempt Jesus. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as as an angel of light. Remember the day that Jesus said to the disciples, whom do men say that I am? And they'd be, oh, that you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, whatever. And whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but 
The Father in heaven revealed that to you. You've had a, a spiritual revelation. And you read on in that same chapter, just a few verses. Jesus has said to the disciples, I'm going to build my church. And then he said, I'm, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be offered up and be crucified. Peter said, come here, Jesus. Come here. You can't talk like that. That's not going to happen under my watch. That won't happen. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan used this man who was so, so committed to Jesus, I'll die for you. But Jesus said, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Satan was using him. Satan comes dis disguised as an angel of light. The tempter also disguised his purposes. He disguised his purposes. He did not approach Eve through the serpent and say, Hey, I'm here to tempt you to sin against God. He came under the pretense of having a religious discussion. It was a religious discussion. He wanted to talk theology. And in his talk, what he did is the tempter attacked God's Word. He attacked God's Word. Now, think with me about God's Word thus far in the story of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was. And you read, and God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. Chapter 1 is all about, and God said, and there was. Everything that Adam and Eve had experienced, saw around them, was the result of the Word of God. The life that they enjoyed was the result of the Word of God. Satan came and he attacked the word by saying this with this question, this theological question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, he didn't directly contradict God yet, the tempter subtly introduced the idea that God's word is subject to our judgment. The tempter subtly introduced the idea that God's word is subject to our judgment. Did God actually say? What did he mean by what he said? This is the first time this kind of thing is introduced. Letter B, the tempter was careful not to use the covenant name of God. The covenant name of God. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about in chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. And that word God in the Hebrew is Elohim, 
which means the omnipotent creator God, the God that's way out there somewhere. Chapter 2, it talks about the Lord God, L-O-R-D in caps, which means Yahweh Elohim. The covenant God, that's his covenant name. That's his name Then where he comes down and said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Satan did not use that name, he used the Elohim. Elohim, when I think about that, I'm reminded of the song that Bette Midler made famous. From a distance, God is watching. Beautiful little tune. Not good theology. But that's the kind of theology the devil wants you to believe. That God's way off there in the distance. The deists want you to believe that, that God created it all and then sat back and said, I put it into motion, whatever happens, happens. Satan wants to speak in God in in an abstract way, in an impersonal way. And when Eve responds back, she responds back with like words, Elohim. It was a perfect ruse to diminish the word of God and to bring it under the judgment of the woman that God had created. Before we read Eve's response, let me remind you of what God had said about the trees in the garden. In chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You shall surely eat of every tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you look at that, the tempter seems to be implying that God is stingy. When it was really just the opposite. But God said to Adam, you can eat every tree but this one. We're talking about generosity. We're talking about bountiful provision. But the tempter wants Eve to think something different. Did God actually say she'll not eat of any tree in the garden? The nuance of that was so subtle that Eve did not really pick up on it. She did not understand she was being led down a road. There was a seed of doubt planted that took hold very quickly. So Eve, number four, revised what God had said. She revised it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Is there anything missing from what we read in chapter two? It's not much different except for, there's a word missing, every tree. We may eat of the fruit of the trees. Eve had the opportunity to set the serpent, or the tempter who was using the serpent, straight. She had the opportunity to send him packing with his question in hand by quoting what God had actually said. Whether she realized it or not, she was succumbing to the temptation to minimize God's provision. Letter A, Eve diminished the word of God. 
God said you may eat of every tree. She said we may eat of the fruit of the trees. Not much different. But it's the beginning to the end. Because secondly, Eve added to the word of God. Verse 3. But God, Elohim, said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, where did that come from? Did you read that in chapter 2? Did you read that in chapter 1? You don't touch that tree? What the tempter has accomplished is to get Eve to focus on God's strictness. To the point of changing what God said, do not eat, to don't even touch it or you'll be zapped dead. This is a fairly common practice today among homo sapiens. It goes something like this. Little Sally has her friend Annie over to spend the night. As the evening progresses, they continue to ignore Dad's command to quiet down. Don't be so noisy. It's time to go to sleep. And after the umpteenth time of telling them, all right, Sally, Annie has to go home. And Sally goes running to Mom and says, Dad said Annie can't ever come over again. Ever had anything like that happen in your house? You said a little bit and it became exaggerated. Guy's late for work and the boss calls him in and says, and it's been multiple times, and he said, you know, you really should, this is important, you need to change your behavior. And he walks out of the office and goes to tell the other employees, that stuffed shirt told me if I'm late again, he's going to fire me. That's not what he said behind the closed doors, but he makes something different out of it. He exaggerates that. When we do not like a law or rule that's been laid down, we have a tendency to magnify its strictness. Let me run that by you again. When we don't like a law or mandate that's been laid down, we tend to magnify its strictness. Eve added to the Word of God, and before you judge her too harshly, how often in the name of defending God or in the name of being more righteous do we make the laws that God gave stricter than God made them? Let me illustrate from the New Testament. How many times do you remember reading that the religious leaders got really uptight because Jesus did something? He healed a man on the Sabbath day and told him to pick up his bed and walk. They were walking through the fields and the disciples were hungry, so they grabbed some stalks off of the grain growing there and they ate on the Sabbath day. Remember how uptight they were? Now God did say, remember the Sabbath day and make it holy. So to appear more righteous, they made a whole book full of laws about what it means not to work on the Sabbath day. And you can't 
I've told you before, one of the laws that just stuck in my brain for some reason, if you spit on the Sabbath day, you better spit on the rock and not the dirt, because if you spit in the dirt, it'll make mud, and if you make mud, you've worked. My point is, we have a tendency in defending God or trying to be more righteous to say things about God that God did not say and increase His law. We must be aware of diminishing the Word of God in our life or adding to the Word of God. Beware of thinking that the Word of God is unreasonable or too requiring. I have heard people say, I know God says you must forgive, but I can't. It's just not impossible. I just can't. God wouldn't have commanded you to if it was impossible. Because you do it because he forgave you. That's what Ephesians 4.32 says. How about maturing in our faith? Learning how to give our anger to the Lord because the anger of man does not work God's righteousness. How about learning to give control of our tongue to the Holy Spirit? That's in James. Oh, do you want me to move on? Okay. Eve not only added the Word of God, she softened the Word of God. She softened the word of God. She said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Lest you die. Now that implies to me, you might die. You might not die. Lest you die. What did God say in Genesis 2.17? If you eat of it, you will surely die. So Eve, in her short response to the tempting question, diminishes the word, she adds to the word, she softens the word. And you know what? That is happening today. The tempter has been successful in getting so many believers to diminish the word of God. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, I'm so thankful that we are saved by grace. You cannot buy your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. We are saved by grace and grace alone. But there are people who have diminished that word and feel like because it's grace and where sin abounds, God's grace abounds more, I can do anything I want, go anywhere I want, do anything I want with anyone I want because there's grace. Is that what the Bible says in totality? Because I'm saved by grace, now I live by grace, and I do not submit myself to be an instrument of sin on purpose. I submit myself by grace to live for God. And everybody said? Amen. I want to make sure I'm in the right church. <laughs> the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. But they take it and they would diminish it and say, because God's sovereign and He's in charge of everything, I'm not responsible for anything. And that's not scriptural either. We are responsible. We will give an account 
for what we did with the salvation that he gave to us. There's the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and some things you take by faith and believe by faith, but you don't diminish the word of God. Do not use what sounds theological to justify sinning. That's the work of the tempter. To get us to diminish the word of God, to add the word, to soften the word of God. That's what the tempter does. So verse 2 says this, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he, number five, he contradicted the word of God. He contradict, he's come to the point where he set her up enough he can contradict the word of God and she's going to take the bait. These last words, you will not surely die. Once or twice, I have seen professional wrestling on TV. Or you remember when heavyweight boxing was a big deal and they would get the two guys together in a press conference and they would get in each other's face and talk trash. This is what Satan is doing right at this moment. Though he's talking to Eve, he's getting in God's face. You shall not surely die. He's just contradicting God directly. Satan denies the doctrine of divine judgment. He denies the doctrine of divine judgment. The very first doctrine in the Bible that is denied. You won't die. Everyone goes to heaven. A loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. What kind of God would that be? How many in our world today have diminished the word of the Lord and softened the point that they do not believe in divine judgment? Does God really mean it when he said, if you live to the flesh, you will die? Does God really mean it when he said, when you sow to the flesh, you are going to reap corruption? Does God mean it when he says, the eye of the Lord is against the wicked? Does God mean it when he said, he shall judge his people? Does God mean it when he says, fornicators and adulterers will be judged? Is the book still valid? Is the book still valid? I'm picking up a few. Some of you are hoping it's... Um, yeah. God is serious about sin because God is serious about you. God is serious about sin because God's serious about you. He wants you to be with Him for eternity. He loves you. 
God is serious about sin because He knows the devastation that sin can have in your life, in your relationships, your character, your ministry. God is as, as serious about sin as a loving parent is about fire and, and his children, mourning his children, knowing that fire can maim them or take their life. Does God mean it when he says there will be judgment? Satan uses the serpent to plant doubt on Eve's mind by asking a question based on perversion of the word of God. Eve then begins to question herself as she answers the question. Then Satan is free to openly contradict the word of God. Eve should be running from that meeting. Adam should have stepped in and stopped that conversation by declaring the word of God. James says, resist the devil and he will flee. She didn't and he didn't. Number six, the tempter then attacked the goodness of God. He attacked the goodness of God. Now that he sees he has enough doubt in Eve's mind, he comes in for the kill. He attacks the goodness of God. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the accusation could be read this way. God, he's trying to hold you down. He just threatened to kill you. So you wouldn't do that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's jealous of, and he just doesn't want you that fruit. So he told you you'll die. The lie is God's not good. God's trying to withhold from you the best things. The tempter lured Eve with the hope of divinity. You will be like God. And here's the paradox for me. And God said, let us make man how? Now, he didn't create human beings to be omnipotent, but he did create them to reflect his glory. And they were never going to be any more like God than they were when God created them in his image. And yet there was something inside of that human heart that Satan knew he could plant the same desire that he had that got him kicked out of heaven. Remember, that's why the dragon was cast down. He lifted himself up and said, I want to be as God. And by the way, he was living in divine judgment. He'd been cast out of heaven. And he's denying that divine judgment exists. I mean, remember what Jesus said about him? He's the liar, the father of lies. His native tongue is lying. And so here he comes and he lures her into this, you'll be as God. Sin has an intrinsic spiritual lure. 
If you do this, you'll be something you never have been before. In a conversation recently with a, a man, um, he made a statement to me about when he lost his virginity at 18 years old, and he was probably the oldest person in his class to lose his virginity because he was too shy, and he'd had opportunities, but he didn't take them. He didn't know why he didn't take them. I said, you shouldn't have taken them. Those weren't opportunities for something good. We talked about the sexual union as God created it to be. And it wasn't in a context of a condemning him in any way. It was enlightening him in what the Word of God says. But he believed the lie of Satan. You missed out on something. You'd be more of a man if you would have done this. God's repressing you. The lie held out the lure of moral autonomy. The lie held out the lure of moral autonomy. Eat this fruit and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Meaning you won't need God to tell you what to do. You'll be in charge of your own life. Your destiny will be in your own hands. You can make your own rules. Have you ever heard anything like that since? Back to the song I referred to at the beginning. You think I forgot about it, didn't you? Three quarters through the way of the song. The music begins to build. Louder. Big. Orchestra. And, I mean, it. it's a... It's a moving piece of music. And, and you come to, I don't know, it's about the sixth verse or so. There's about eight of them. And, he, and the writer writes, I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times... I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up, I spit it out. I faced it all, I stood tall, and I did it my way. The eighth and final verse. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. I mean, if that's not in the face of God, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Who did he write that song for? Paul Anka wrote the song. Who was defined by that song? Frank Sinatra made the song popular worldwide. He became known by that, and much to his demise. All the songs that he sang. And there's record of him saying toward the end, he wished that 
that had not been the case because it was so self-centered, so self-centered. I was hired to sing for a funeral of a prominent judge here in Cowles County in a church building that he attended once in a while, I guess. And he, I was hired to sing that song. It amazes me that somebody would want to have that to be their eulogy. I did not bow my knee. I did it my way. But yet there's something alluring about living my way. Making my own choices. Being the master of my own destiny. You'll be free, Sanctin says. You'll be in charge. You'll no longer be repressed by the stinging and jealous God. Eve bought the lie, number seven. Eve bought the lie. It doesn't say if the serpent hung around or walked away. But with this fresh way of looking at the tree, verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, of a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, good for food, it looked good, and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There's a way that seems right to men. She took his fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. As she pondered the words of the tempter, looked at the fruit, the command of God seemed inconsequential. It couldn't be that bad. It'll all be okay. This one time, I'm sure it'll be okay. You ever heard that said in your head? She ate. Adam chose to join her. Adam chose to join her. Reading the context, the wording that is used, it appears that Adam was privy to the whole conversation. But the scripture tells us, unlike Eve, he was not deceived by Satan's lie, yet he ate. Was it because she didn't drop over dead? Or was it because he thought she would drop over dead and he didn't want to be alone and he wanted to die with her? I don't know. But the scripture indicates it was with a clear understanding that I am disobeying God's command and I'm going to eat that fruit. Paul wrote it in 1 Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Speaking of Adam in the book of Romans, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, doesn't blame Eve, she was deceived. But Adam made a willful choice. His one sin brought death into the world, spread to all men, because all sin. Because of him, we were all born in sin. We were all born sinners. 
Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And the results were seismic. Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve, mankind, fell into the pit of guilt and estrangement. Mankind fell into the pit of guilt and estrangement. Then both, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. I guess you could say what the serpent told them was half true. They did not physically die that day. Adam lived 930 years. Yet they did die. There was a spiritual death that took place. They were excommunicated from the garden. They were no longer able to walk with God the way that they had walked with God before. They lost their constant communion. They were in need of a Savior. Their eyes were open, grotesque. They got the knowledge they wanted, but they got it in the wrong way. They saw evil. They saw themselves. They saw that they were naked and vulnerable. And now they wanted to be covered. Innocence was gone. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. We'll see that next week when we read the next verses. Fear gripped their hearts. Now they would have to labor to love God and to love each other. Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians, we are not ignorant of his designs. Speaking of Satan, we're, we would not be outwitted by Satan. In that context, he's talking about forgiving one another so that we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his design. So from this story, there's a few things I want to point out that we should learn. Sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and doubt God's goodness. Sin begins to take hold when we doubt God's word and doubt God's goodness. We must be aware of allowing doubt to revise the word of God and his promises, both consciously and unconsciously. Don't have to answer out loud or raise your hand. Have you ever thought, I believe God can heal you. I believe God can set you free. But me, I'm not worthy. I've been too bad. I don't have enough faith. I don't know how many times I heard my dad say, whatever's not of faith is sin. Now doubts come. John the Baptist had doubt. He sent his disciples, Jesus, are you the one? Thomas had doubt, unless I put my hand. But both of them came to the Lord and did away with that doubt, became men of faith. Doubt will cause us to either minimize God's word or to exaggerate it. Doubt will cause us to either minimize God's word 
or to exaggerate it. The areas of Scripture that are uncomfortable for us, the ones we don't like, we're tempted to add to them in such a way that lets us off a hook. Across the world, there are some major denominations, long-standing church denominations, going back hundreds of years, who have come to the conclusion that much of this book was written for a culture back then, but the culture's changed so much that this book is no longer relevant, and we should ignore, and they don't use that word, but in practice, that's what they do. They ignore what God has to say. When God doesn't give us something we want, we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. When God doesn't give us something that we really long for, we really want, we doubt God's goodness. And then when we see our brother or sister get blessed with something that we wanted, God loves them more than me. But do you realize that sometimes it's God's goodness that He does not give us what we want? He knows the other end of the story. When we doubt God's Word and His goodness, we are headed for a fall. When we doubt God's Word and His goodness, we are headed for a fall. As I've shared with you before, Moses is writing this book of beginnings and the next four books in your Bible during the 40 years he spent leading the Israelites out of Egypt in the wilderness they wouldn't go into the promised land because they doubted God's word. They did not receive the promise. They doubted God's goodness. But when the next generation is getting ready to go in, Moses is about to die. He writes the book of Deuteronomy. It's his farewell speech. And in chapter 6, verse 6, we read these words. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'm talking about the law that he wrote, Ten Commandments and all that went with it. You make that a part of your daily, everyday thinking, everyday conversation, the Word of God. He comes to the end of the book. And some scholars believe it now that this is a song that he's singing. And he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but underline these words, but your very life. By this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. This is not an empty word. It is your very life. 
That's the application point. God's Word is your very life. God's Word is your very life. Blessed is the man, Psalms 1 said, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Recently in our daily Bible reading, we read Psalms 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses made up of 22 sections of eight lines together. And it, it's an acrostic using the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each section goes from, we would say, from A to Z. It's all about the Word of God. I think there's only two verses, maybe three, that don't have the Word of God in it. That author, that he knew that the Word of God is our very life. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? If you're the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. And you remember what Jesus said? He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Verse 3 says, And he humbled you and, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that the man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus taught us by the way that he lived. Rest everything on God's good word and on the good God of the word. Jesus taught us by the way that he lived his life, rest everything on God's good word. And there's no end in that word. And on the good God of the word. And on the good God. God is good. All the time. We say that. but I hope we believe that. And as we prayed earlier, we came to the conclusion of singing the worship songs. Sometimes it's hard to embrace God's good to me when everything is going upside down. <coughs> but remember Romans eight twenty eight. And we know. And we know that all things work together for good. All things. Because God's good. God is good. When you're going through a difficult time, do what David did. Remember what God did then. Remember what God did then, and then, and then.